0: Hello and welcome to the program. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. As always, a very busy program ahead of us tonight. Let's say hello to the panel, starting in Greystones with Niall Hatch. Hello, Niall.
1: Hi Derek, uh, nice to be talking to you after all the excitement of the horse show there last week, it was a lot of fun.
0: It was fantastic and well done again to Team Ireland, the Aga Khan Trophy or the Aga Khan Cup, the Nations Cup. Aina any is in Terranur, Aina.
2: Good, how are you doing Derek? I'm here in Terranure, indeed, delighted with myself. I had a great day yesterday, I was out in Malahide in Richard Collins's neck of the woods.
0: Oh, did you call in to say hello to
2: Richard? I was much too busy. I had my five-year-old grandson and my 70-something-year-old husband, granddad and grandson. And we were up in Malahide Castle, which is a wonderful place. We went to the butterfly greenhouse where loads of butterflies were flying around. He was fascinated with them. And then we went on the fairy trail, which was a big guided tour all around the grounds. Walked the legs of the poor little fellow. There were about 15 clues and we had to get every single one of them. And then we went down to the Fry's Railway and there were more clues there and we had to find a missing penguin. Lord we were full of excitement <laughs> and then we had to see the rock pools so there wasn't time to be visiting <laughs> Richard Collins and, we can and do that I, any old dare day. dare I
0: ask how your husband fared with all these clues
2: <laughs> excuse me my husband is grand not a bother on him he was doing mighty he was filling in he, he had the pencil he had to fill in the missing words so we were a team we were a wonderful team I t- what, what's
0: your grandson's name Archie. Archie. Well, good man, Archie. And do you to highly recommend it to our listeners if they find themselves in North County, Dublin?
2: I certainly would. Archie is on his last week before we start school. He's starting school next Wednesday. Can you remember when you started school, Derek? Or is that so long ago? Or did you ever go to school?
0: I did for a couple of days, Aina. But I tell you, it's so long ago, I don't remember. I can barely remember yesterday, to be perfectly honest.
2: Well, anyway, it's a big moment going off to school. So he's having a week of adventures with his grandparents before he goes. And we'll, we'll be glad when he goes to school and we stop having these adventures. Well,
0: good luck to all the parents and the grandparents who have a little one going off to school for the first time next week. Richard, you're always singing the praises of Malahide Castle.
3: I am indeed. Yes, it's a lovely place. It's a lovely amenity and the Fry Model Railway is lovely. And I also remember my first day at school vividly. I went into the school, and there were these desks and I thought you sat on the the desk where you write, where you put the book and put your feet on the chair and That's i'm very disappointed to discover that you sat down and you were supposed to work on the the desk. but I'll always remember that that and as vividly as if it were yesterday, and I was four at that stage.
0: I don't remember the first day, but I certainly remember that we had inkwells in the desk. Now, I'm 55. I presume your desks had inkwells also,
3: Richard. Oh, yes, I had inkwells uh, right through the National School. And it was a a considerable offence to blot one's copybook. And the teacher went around and filled up the inkwells. And if you dropped the pen, the nib of it would be damaged. And you had to pull the the old nib off and put a new nib on. And there was a little groove on the desk so Mm, that the the pen... Yeah, so it wouldn't listen, roll off the
0: desk because the desks were at a slant weren't they and you could lift were, them up and store your of, books inside yeah, they
3: were I'm getting a lump in my throat talking like this Derek you know I'd be modelling in a minute but, but it 's okay it's, yeah, I'm it's part, sure,
0: part of I'm growing sure. up ain't I? I presume your desks were the same
2: my desks were, were no, we the lid didn't lift up. We just put the things in underneath them. But I went to the old school and the old school, when I, I went to school at the age of three, because I was a precocious young one, I wasn't four until October. And so I went off at the age of three and I couldn't I couldn't believe how stupid everybody else was. Nobody could write. They wouldn't give you a pencil. And I had my own pencil in my own school bag and took it out and wrote with it. So I was very disappointed in school altogether. I thought it was going to be, I don't know, hugely more than I was doing it home, but I suppose if your father was the master and your mother was very well up as well, I had to go to school I must have been a precocious brat, I'm sure the teacher hated me.
3: <laughs> Richard your parents were teachers as well, weren't they? They were yes, and I went to my mother's school uh, my Ooh. father taught in a different school, but on the wildlife side, there were rats in the school, and the caretaker used to catch them in cage traps, and I remember I was that was my introduction to wildlife in a sense.
1: Do you remember your days Nile? Oh, I do. Absolutely. Some some good, some bad. Uh, I must admit, we did have some of those uh, old style desks when I was in school, That we didn't use the inkwell. So there's these big holes in the desk that nobody knew really what they were for. We did have the storage space underneath, but I learned pretty quickly not actually to put anything under there or not even put my hand under there because they were full of mouldy apples and rotten sandwiches and chewing gum and all that. So, uh, But that was just the first couple of years I was at school and then the desks were replaced with more modern ones. And we always used Byros. Uh, I do remember as well, wildlife ran my school was, was was pretty good. I went to school in and I remember very vividly when I was quite young, seeing my first ever waxwing uh, on a berry bush in the school grounds. I was just blown away with this exotic bird that I, prior to then, I'd only seen in, in, in the, the bird book that I had at home. So that was actually one of my, my first ever introductions to the world of exotic migratory birds. And it kind of always stuck with me that it was really, really nice.
2: We, we we had rats in our school too, but we were, we made so much noise at school that the rats didn't come out. They only came out in the evening time when we'd all gone home. And um, I remember we got a new school in 1957 and the old school had the floor taken up and all underneath the whole floor was all rat runs and everything else. It's no wonder we didn't all die of bubonic plague, honest to goodness. Things are much different now and much more hygienic. If there was a rat to be seen near a school anywhere... The whole place be closed for a month. We were made of stern stuff then, weren't we, Richard?
3: Well, we were responsible for the rats in a funny sort of way because everyone was given a lunch going to school and a bottle of milk for a lunch hour you see so but some of the boys didn't like what they were given and they didn't like the milk and they went to a shore and they poured the milk down the shore and they dumped the sandwiches or whatever it was there and of course the rats thrived on this so we induced the rats in a sense all we wanted in those days was sweet things that destroy our teeth which indeed they did in my case however that's another story
0: anyway talking about schooling the whole purpose Purpose of it is to develop as a person, but probably and most importantly, to learn. And Aina Lowney, you're all about education and learning. And I see that you've got another new book, Aina. It's hardly a year since the last one, Our Wild World, was published. You've been busy. What's this one about?
2: This one, Derek, is called Wild and Wonderful, Around the World with Aina, And in fact, it's probably a prequel, if you like, to Our Wild World. Our Wild World, the one I wrote last year, was about how the world worked. But this one, Wild and Wonderful, is, I suppose, how I how I learnt about all of this, the places I've been to and the things I saw way back in the 70s and 80s and 90s when we could do this kind of thing and travel and not have, have the knowledge that we have now, how bad travelling is mm. for the world.
0: Now, we did a series on radio, Aina, some years ago called World Wild. Have you mentioned that, our trip to Costa Rica?
2: Indeed, I have mentioned our trip to Costa Rica. You're in it warts and all, Derek. But Costa Rica was a tropical rainforest, as we know, and I have other forests in it too. I have the wonderful exotic forests in New Zealand, whereas on the other side of the world, on the other hemisphere, I wasn't able to recognise a single thing in the woodland which was native to those woods, southern beaches, different birds, wonderful mosses, the New Zealand fern with the silver back. That was a wonderful experience. And, of course, I'm describing as well being in North America, looking at the forests of the giant redwoods, both on the biggest ones, which were beside Yosemite Park, and the tallest ones, which were Jan Weir Park, way up on the the coast north of San Francisco. So to be able to see these wonderful forests now, knowing, as we do, about how endangered they are from climate change and from, from, from being burnt and that, it was... So I'm describing... Through my eyes, I mean, not hugely, it's not a scientific journal as such, but it's what I saw when I was there in those forests. So I have a couple of chapters on that, which I hope people will like to read.
0: Now, I see you've included your trips to Africa, to Rwanda, Ethiopia and Eritrea. Can you even visit Eritrea?
2: Well, no, you can't visit, you or I, anybody can't visit Eritrea without getting special permission. But I got special permission as an agricultural advisor, you'll be glad to know, because I was going with Vita, who are an aid organisation, and they were helping the, the people, indeed in Ethiopia and in Eritrea, to be able to look after themselves. And the idea we were going there was to look at where the rains, which would come for six weeks and would fill up the rivers and the rivers would hold the water and it would go down to the wells underneath. This thing had all come in a fortnight, lashed into the same amount of rain in a fortnight, hooshed all down the rivers and was gone. So the, the idea was that if, if they built dams, like, like steps of a ladder along their river, this would hold back the water and actually retain it so that it would go down naturally into the into the wells underneath. So we were inspecting those dams. So I was, I was considered to be a, an agricultural inspector as well, so I was able to come along and walk on the dams. And of course, I was looking at the difference between one side of the dam where the water was and the other side where it was completely barren and arid. And I went to Rwanda as well because Mm. I had raised money there thanks to you, Derek. Well, not thanks to you, I suppose, really. Do you remember when we started off being on the air on Fridays and you were teaching us, so we all had to learn something new and I was supposed to learn how to sing, God love me. (laughs) (laughs) And I sang, I know an old lady who swallowed a fly and somebody heard it and thought this would make a great record. And it truly was brought out and it was number one that Christmas only they don't count such things as charity records as number one anyway it raised 60 grand and the government of Ireland put another 60 grand to it so we had 120,000 then for the people of Rwanda to put water into it it was like as if you had Dublin and Bray no water in Bray water in Dublin and the reason why there was no water in Bray because there were no pipes mm. so Gitarama was getting pipes put into it with the money that I had raised on that and then when it all was opened and all ready to go I was was invited out to open open the water and um, you know and they were so grateful that they were able to have water there. So it was very interesting to see Rwanda eleven years after the genocide, after the troubles and how the country was so very small for an African country. It's the size of a monster, it's really tiny. Eleven million people living there. So a different world again to see. And I'm explaining this in my book as well.
0: Ain't There was an old woman who swallowed a fly. I don't know
2: why she swallowed oh, no, a fly. no? The poor kids, they, they, die. <laughs> the poor children. There, they, they were honouring me by singing my song. You see, but the poor kids didn't speak English. It wasn't their native tongue at all. It might have been French, but certainly it was never English. And I'm trying to stagger through the 16 verses of this. I was only sorry I hadn't sung "Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream." It would have been easier for the kids, wouldn't it?
0: Anyway, we'll listen to it a little bit later on. Now you've got a chapter titled "The View from the Top." What's that all about?
2: well it's not the view from the top of the Himalayas that's for sure anyway no 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 I was just um, looking back you know you always say well if I was in charge I'd do this and if I was in charge I'd do that and why aren't people doing this that and the other so anyway I suppose I got my moment well like kind of on the top anyway I was president of Antashka for five years and just over the over the crash in, at that time from 2004 to 2009 that was an interesting one and then that'd be on programmes then and it would be like a blood sport because uh, in the interest of balance no matter what you were coming on to talk about in favour of the environment. There had to be somebody who thought it was a bad idea to be against it. And of course, one, I didn't listen to what was being said to me by the opposition and the opposition didn't listen to a word I was saying to them because the whole point of this was to actually speak to the constituency that was listening, not to make anyone change their minds. Although I was mischievously tempted at one point to say, God, I never thought of that. That's true. Trees are a terrible nuisance. We should cut them all down or something. I should actually agree with who the protagonist was but I, I never did get round to doing that.
0: Anyway the book is called Wild and Wonderful and it's published by O'Brien Press and is available now in all good bookshops. I'm pretty you probably buy it directly from their website as well. I don't know, can they ain't
2: it? Yeah can kind of, they can of course I mean everybody can buy everything online now so online too. Yeah yeah. Well indeed.
0: good good for you. How many books have you done to date?
2: This is probably number six or number seven. I'm in the middle of doing more as well too, but I can't tell you about those yet. Ah, sure, it's something to be doing to while away the long evenings. It
0: is, but would you ever consider writing an autobiography?
2: Who wants to know how I live? No, I see, wouldn't. You know, not. Anna,
0: every future Uktaran the Heron must have a biography.
2: <laughs> I, I've had enough time being on the Bombashka. That'll do me, now, thanks. <laughs> oh, I can see it. I can see it. I can
0: feel it in me waters, Zena. Richard, you've never written a book about wildlife, have you?
3: No, Derek, I haven't. But I, in my defence, I would point out that I have written over a thousand articles for the examiner alone i publish an article every week i've done so for 23 years never missed a week in all that time there's an enormous quantity of stuff there in my defense i will put that up i have done enough writing through that medium
0: yeah yeah you forgot to mention who your predecessor was in that article richard
3: who was it it was me oh you that's right too were <laughs> Oh, sorry Derek I mean oh, oh, oh my that's god
0: that's alright you're forgiven
3: Nile. had will you really forgive me
1: yeah Niall <laughs> yes Derek yeah it's very interesting hearing of all the, these uh, these scholarly tomes and all this writing um, I haven't written any books myself as yet but I do uh, enjoy very much editing Birdwatch Ireland's magazines and publications which is sort of a good, good experience in that area I'm really looking forward Aina to, to, to reading your new book your last one was absolutely cracking particularly interested by the way I see that you, you have um, some reminiscences in there about your experience as a diver which I'm particularly get keen to find out more about
2: Oh yeah, there's a whole world under the sea as well and I was I really love diving it's the nearest thing to flying, Nile because you're weightless and you, when you want to go up you go up, and you want to go down you go down and the Irish waters around the coast were full of wildlife, particularly on the west coast and then I did a bit in the Mediterranean, a bit in the Red Sea and Dublin Bay actually got cleaned up while I was my diving career at one point when we started diving if you put out your hand you couldn't see your fingers, it was so dirty but then with the you know the, the improvement of the sewage Conditions and the the removal of that, Dublin Bay got really much cleaner. So that was good to notice in that. And of course, then to go and see exciting things like, like, like barracudas and all kinds of things like that. That that was great as well. I so think diving yes. Your it's door, good. Aina.
0: I think there's somebody at your door. I can hear your doorbell going. Aina's book, details on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Niall, Richard, and Aina, and listeners listening right now, I'm sure you probably heard the story during the week about the anti-sea. Seagull bags that are being given out to some businesses and domestic homes in Dublin to stop the seagulls from pecking at them. This is an initiative by Dublin City Council. Niall, what can you tell us about this?
1: Yes, I was very interested to see this because uh, it's long been a, a problem around Dublin City that, that the, the way in which a lot of commercial waste is, is collected and, and, and put out in the streets is attracting in antisocial behaviour from from gulls and also from other creatures, such as rats and foxes that come in to go through the bin bags and scavenge on them. So hopefully this initiative will help to reduce that and therefore will help to reduce the conflict between herring gulls, which is the main species involved here, and human beings because there's been a lot of negative press around our herring gulls in recent years Uh, but actually at the end of the day we humans have to accept a lot of the blame for that in the way we manage our waste and the way that we 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 run our urban areas so these these bags they're um they're made of plastic which which in itself isn't great i would prefer to see non-plastic solutions but still um it it really sort of like those those people might be familiar with skip bags or those rubble bags that people may use they seem to be made of a similar substance to that so the idea is that this will be impenetrable to the gull's beaks they won't be able to rip them open in the way that they can currently easily rip open a flimsy black plastic bin bag Uh, and hopefully then if these are used properly and and sealed properly the gulls will no longer be able to access that food and we won't see it strewn all around the streets. Um, However I think that we do also have to accept another bit of responsibility here as humans in in terms of the sheer amount of food that we throw away I was horrified to see a report recently that here in Ireland one third of all of our food that is is bought is thrown away which is absolutely shocking so there's lots of food unnecessarily going into those bags and of course that's going to attract uh, attract gulls uh, and other creatures too and as I always say the gulls get a lot of the bad press um, and in some cases it's deserved but they do yes. get a lot of bad press because because they're out during the day and we see them doing it. You can be absolutely sure that at night rats and foxes are doing exactly the same thing uh, and that's an issue too. So I think you know it's good to see it's good to see these bags being brought in because honestly throwing out flimsy black plastic bin bags on the street uh, is no modern way to be dealing with refuse collection. So they're a bit like
0: it. the rubble bags you get at home for putting some uh, rubbish if you're doing a little bit of construction work or deconstruction work around your house where you're doing some gardening those heavy duty bags that's what they're like
1: yeah, that's right. Absolutely. So the, the heavy duty is the key here. They're much uh, they're much more robust uh, than than the the existing bin bags that people will be familiar with that a gull's beak could very easily rip into. And of course, the idea is, is that they'd be reusable as well. So they're not single use bags. They're receptacles for for the bags to go into. Uh, so uh, so hopefully it will will help to to reduce some of the some of the issues and some of the problems that these uh, these the, these birds are are both causing and experiencing. Because I always say the gulls themselves, being in the urban areas and I'm, I'm going through the bins and nesting on the rooftops. They're not the problem themselves. They're the symptom of a much bigger problem. And that's how we humans are managing our waste. It's how we're managing our marine ecosystems. It's how we're robbing these birds of their natural foods and their nesting opportunities, which forces them into urban areas. The fact that these gulls are nesting on rooftops around Dublin now, it's not the sign of a species that's thriving or losing the run of itself, as you often hear in the media. It's the sign of a species in crisis. in (laughs) Niles! No. I just don't agree with you. Now, I can't back that
0: up with any figures. You're the scientific guy here. You can tell me. Well, we've got the figures. But they're Absolutely. thriving in Dublin. You're, everywhere you go, you see. And it's not just Dublin, it's other cities and towns around the country. I don't want to be accused of being Dublin centric.
1: No, no, although Dublin it does seem to be a particular issue in Dublin. I know Waterford as well has uh, issues with it. it is, and Galway too. It is, it is spreading a bit more. But th- that's that's the importance of having evidence-based um, science for, for everything that we would say. OK, in OK. Let
0: me stop so, you. Let me stop you. Let me stop you. <laughs> you. What about learned behaviour? So one gull sees another gull doing this. It learns the behaviour and then it realises this is much easier pickings than being where we were along the coast and on the
1: islands. That's partially true, yes, absolutely, Uh, because they take the easy option, as many of us humans would do as well. Okay, so then,
0: then they're not threatened. They're just taking the easy options and they've decided to move where the food is, so they've moved more inland.
1: Well, just in, in terms in terms of the statistics on this, the, the data shows that herring gulls have declined by 90% in Ireland in the course of just 30 years. So there is a very, very serious decline. So that species absolutely has declined and we are seeing them coming more into urban areas driven by the, the need to find food. If if marine ecosystems were functioning better, if there's more food available for them in the wider countryside, including, of course, along the shorelines, uh, then they wouldn't need to come into the cities to scavenge in such big numbers. Having said that, of course, there's nothing unusual about having gulls around Dublin City. Uh, the fact is that, our, you know, it's, it's the city on the coast. Those gulls have been there for a thousand years. There's nothing new about that at all. Nesting on the rooftops, that is a more modern phenomenon but you can be sure that gulls have been going through the, the refuse in Dublin city for centuries. There's nothing unusual about that yeah, at but all. But so I, that's not a new term. Sorry,
0: I don't like cutting you off and I apologise for being rude now. But I mean so as long as this programme's been on air, which is 27 years this year, that they've been gulls nesting on rooftops, particularly along coastal towns and villages like Hoth, etc, etc, because we've been covering it but it's Mm. a much more recent phenomenon that they're in the city centre I think,
1: having lived in Dublin all my
0: life and noticed it, and you, you can't go anywhere without being followed by a
1: gull and a big part of that is that it's really important that people don't deliberately feed them. It's not good when these birds learn to associate humans with food and that very much is a learned behaviour. So like, like ourselves they'll take the easy option when they can and some of these birds have, because people have been throwing them chips and sandwiches and so on or because they, maybe they've seen people discarding food, not deliberately for the gulls, but they, they see them doing it and put two and two together and realise, oh these these large ape creatures walk around the streets, they're an easy source of food mm. so I'll follow them. That can happen. Yes, so it's not yes, good. I, I you
0: know. agree with that, yes and no. Have you not- not got a conflict of interest here Niall because you're the head of development with Birdwatch Ireland so you're going to shout out for the gulls. You're not going to say anything negative about them at all. Do you ever say anything negative about the gulls?
1: Uh, well, look, I, I think the, the fact is that they're, they're wild creatures that are trying to make their way in the world. I think that what we can change, we can't change their behaviour, we can change our own behaviour as a species. And I think so many of the problems that nature faces boils down to human behaviour, human destruction of the environment, habitat destruction, all of these things that that plays a big, big role in it. Well, we have a situation at the moment where gull nesting colonies on islands like Ireland's Eye, for example, off, the, off Hoth. During the summer months, you have you have hundreds of day trippers just blindly walking through that gull colony, which which is illegal, but um, nobody really informs. those laws and those birds don't feel safe they're they're protective parents, they want to look after their eggs and their chicks and some of them decide well let's leave this here much better to go nest on an urban rooftop so when we see changes in in animal behaviour, especially over a very short period of time as we have seen with the gulls there's alarm bells ringing when that happens we'd be fools not to sit up and take notice it's not just that oh these gulls are a nuisance it's wow something's going out of kilter here, why is that happening and how can we correct that? So I think we'd be fools not to pay attention to to that, I think it's very important.
0: Okay so I want you Close your eyes, Ana Richard, and Niall, and imagine an Ireland where every household has one of these anti gull bags. The gulls can't get their beaks through and they can't get at the food. And the place is spotless clean. There's no more debris strewn around our streets and on our roads. So now, because of that, the gull population is in decline
1: in our cities and stuff like that. So, what are you going to say then, Niall? that could be the case. I mean, it's not good, of course, that these birds uh, learn to scavenge rubbish on the streets. Nobody wants that. But just to reiterate, when they're doing that, they're actually removing some of the food that other things like rats are certainly eating as well. So the gulls, we see them during the day, so they get the bad press. But rats are more prevalent in the city than, than of Dublin than, than gulls are. We just don't notice them. Of course, the current situation is that most houses around Dublin, they do have something even better than one of those bags. We have wheelie bins with uh, good lids on them that the birds can't get into at all. So
0: Not in the city centre. And the problem is yeah. the city's centre, really. I mean, if you go down, for example, Blessington Street, yes. which is on the north side of the River Liffey, and it's a beautiful street. The place is, is just upside down. because It's like flatland. So a lot of the old houses are in flats and a lot of people living in them, three, four people to a room in some cases. I can tell you that for a fact. And they're putting out their rubbish and the gulls and whatever else, the rodents and you said, whatever it is, are pecking at them all. night. The place is destroyed. I mean, this is the middle of the city centre. And obviously that's
1: not a good thing at all. Uh, But there's a lot of little streets
0: like that near the Matter Hospital, even
1: in Donnybrook, like Coronation Street type houses
0: where people are putting out plastic bags because wheelie bins simply
1: won't fit in the door. And we do need uh, uh, as a city and as a country to find a better solution. That's, that's really not a, a good way to be dealing with rubbish in, in, in a modern context. It's, it, it does attract rats. It does encourage antisocial behaviour from, from gulls and other creatures. Those areas particularly, I know there's lots of foxes around those areas too. You can be sure that they're ripping open the bags as well. And gougers so I the, walking
0: by at night just kicking the bag around the place. Literally, that's happening too.
1: No, it is. And again, it really comes down to the the fact that we humans can change our own behaviour, both what we do individually and what we demand of our elected representatives and our local authorities. Uh, We can't make the birds change their behaviour. They're doing what comes naturally to them. So we have to remove those sources of food and those opportunities to get more of a balance. Uh, But but then, of course, we do have to recognise that, as you you pointed out there earlier, uh, that when these birds have fewer feeding opportunities, that does make it harder for them. So I think in combination with that, we need to do more to restore our marine ecosystem. We need to do more to reduce the levels of disturbance at their nesting colonies so that we can all go back to living in more of a sort of harmony. Uh, Because we humans, we we tend to to really dominate absolutely everything and nature just gets pushed and pushed and it's only then when it starts to to, to bite back or impact upon us then the calls are there to kill them or cull them or whatever it may be, Uh, whereas at the end of the day it's us humans and our behaviour that's the most selfish Can I just point
0: out that I'm not suggesting a cull of the gulls at all. must be other ways to address this. What do they do in Spain in some of these places? They have these big receptacles and people go along and they dump their rubbish into them. That's the way they do it so they're not leaving bags outside their door all night long.
1: Absolutely and I think we need to, to look at our relationship with our rubbish and waste and what we can do to reduce waste, what we can do to increase recycling, minimising food waste particularly because after all food waste is what these animals are going for. They're not interested in, in, in the plastic or the metal or, any, or the, anything like that They're, or the glass. They're looking for food uh, and uh, and in the cases of animals like, like uh, rats and, and foxes of course they can smell the food in the bags. Gulls, their sense of smell is nowhere near as developed as it is of those creatures. So very often what's happening is that um, to begin with it's rats and foxes getting into the bags and then the gulls learning oh there's food in these and then of course they're, they're visual um, scavengers so when they, they learn to associate those bags with food then of course they rip them open very easily uh, but yeah we do need to, 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 to do more about waste management and, and reducing waste particularly
0: all right more details on the website rte.ie forward slash mooney well we have a little gift now for our roving reporter and biologist mr terry flanagan <laughs> Yes, we've got Terry Flanagan, a brand new signature tune. We felt after all these years, he needed an introduction, a bit like Zadok the priest. But as he's a roving reporter, we felt that maybe the Pink Panther theme tune would suit him best. What do you think, Terry? Are you happy with it? I love it. I love it, Terry. I always fancied myself being in the movies. <laughs> Not a chance. You'll have to stick to radio. Anyway, Terry, I saw something terrible the other day. Now, I hate to see Roadkill. I really do. It really upsets me. And you can't... Always blame the drivers. There are inexperienced animals, first years, that are only getting used to their environment and their surroundings and they think they can make it across the road. And before they know it, bang, they're all over. And I saw a terrible sight the other day. It was a poor old hedgehog. Oh, it was absolutely destroyed. Now, Terence, I know your report
4: this week is all about hedgehogs. Yes, it is, Derek. But before we talk about hedgehogs, you know, when you see a dead hedgehog on the road, it is terrible to see it. I mm. totally agree with you. And remember, this time of the year, the young will be dispersing, so they are very, very inexperienced. But I always felt that when you're seeing hedgehogs, be they alive or dead, at least you know that they're in the locality, that suppose, they're in the yes. area. So like, I try to take that kind of a positive from it. But anyway, as you say, yes, I was on the road. I was in Loch Ray in County Galway. And You'll remember last year we had Elaine O'Reardon on the programme. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elaine is a PhD student working on the distribution of hedgehogs throughout the country. And she was looking for our listeners to provide help with information if and where they saw hedgehogs. And the response was fantastic. More than 5,000 people got on to her. Well... This year, Elaine is again looking for help from the listeners. But this time, she wants people to become more involved by taking part in a survey and putting out footprint tunnels. So everybody can become a domestic inspector, Cluso. <laughs> it's a really nice way for listeners to become involved and help our hedgehogs. So, as I said, I headed off to Loch Ray with magnifying glass in hand to see how she was getting on.
5: Hi Terry, welcome to County Galway.
4: Thank you very much, and such a beautiful day here as well. Yes,
5: absolutely, it's perfect weather.
4: Now it's actually Loch Ray, County Galway we're in, and we're at one of your study areas, is that right?
5: That's right Terry, yes, Uh, so I am doing a little bit of work using um, video camera, using wildlife cameras, To look for hedgehogs.
4: So you have been doing this PhD now for the last couple of years and I know you were on the programme last year talking to us and talking to us particularly about citizen science. So tell us first of all, what is the study?
5: Okay, so this is the Irish Hedgehog Survey. So it is an all-island survey and I'm trying to get up to the minute information on the distribution of hedgehogs in Ireland. So it's got a, it's got a couple of arms and legs to it. Uh, so what I've been asking people to do for the last couple of years is to just let us know whenever they see a hedgehog. So if they see it in the garden or on the side of the road or wherever you see a hedgehog, to report it to the Biodiversity Ireland website. And we've had brilliant success with that. So we've had about 5,000 records over the last couple of years, which is amazing. And then the other kind of arm of it is I've been asking people to take part in in surveys for hedgehogs, to actually do a survey for hedgehogs. So there's a couple of those, so people can do a survey in their garden, so they can put out a footprint tunnel. And that's just like a little kind of a cardboard or a plastic tube with some paper and some ink and a bit of cat food in there and when the hedgehog comes in to eat the food they leave footprints on the way out so that tells us whether or not a hedgehog is visiting your garden but of course if you have a camera as well you can you can do that too so that's that's one survey and then the other survey then is to do a a bigger local area survey where volunteers take 10 footprint tunnels and they put them out over a one kilometer square area and then they do this for a week and let us know whether or not they find hedgehogs. So there's a lot of a lot of different options for people who might be interested in taking part in the hedgehog survey.
4: And have you had many results from people who did this last year?
5: Yeah, we were delighted. So over the last couple of years now, as I said, we had about 5,000 just individual records of hedgehogs from all over the country. And we have had, I think, nearly 300 people do the garden survey. Right. And then we had about, uh, I think, about 112 people did the local area survey so that's been a huge huge response it was a lot more than i was expecting so i'm delighted
4: are there any baseline figures as to how many hedgehogs there are throughout the country
5: no there's been very little research done on hedgehogs in ireland there's only been one phd done so far so we don't really have an idea of how many hedgehogs there are in ireland or what their densities are in in all the different kind of habitats so that's what i'm hoping that this study will provide for us is that, that kind of estimate of what the numbers are. So going down into the future, we'll be able to um, to monitor what the trends are in the population, if they're increasing or decreasing.
4: They're a very unusual animal. There's no animal in Ireland like it, with, that, with those spines and the way it curls up. What's the reaction from the public when you tell them you're studying hedgehogs or you're looking for information off them?
5: Uh, you know, I've had... Re- very few people uh, have a bad word to say about hedgehogs they're very charismatic they're very cute people love them and they're always very interested and and everybody has a hedgehog story for you and and uh, people are very curious about it
4: well traditionally i always felt that there were very few hedgehogs west of the Shannon. would that be so
5: no, that we're not finding that. I think uh, that is something that's been said to me a few times. Is oh, they don't like the west of Ireland. They don't like the granite. They don't. But actually, no, we are getting plenty of hedgehog records from you know all over the west of, of Ireland. Maybe not in the very mountainous areas or the very boggy areas, but we wouldn't expect them there because it just isn't the habitat for them. But we are finding them certainly. Um, you know in in the kind of the farmlands in the villages and towns and stuff around the west of ireland for sure
4: we're here in your study site just outside lockray town tell us exactly what you're doing here
5: OK, so here what I am doing is I'm trying to get an idea of the number of hedgehogs living in this particular habitat.
4: And is there any reason why this particular habitat?
5: Well, I want to get a feel for the kind of densities in different habitat types. So this here is a, is a improved farmland. And then down the line I will do surveys in kind of more low-intensity farmland. And then I will do it in, in more built-up areas and stuff as well. So the idea is, is that if we know what the kind of average density is in different kind of habitat types it will help us to make an educated guess i suppose at what the numbers are in ireland
4: and what about this particular habitat here
5: we do know there are hedgehogs here they occur in very low densities that is what we do know you know as long as that there is hedges and maybe tree lines and and areas where they can build nests and then grasslands and a mixture of there are different kinds of grasslands here, where they can come out and feed in the at night time hopefully these kind of habitats can support hedgehogs then.
4: And how many of these typical sites are you studying this year?
5: Uh, there will be two this year, we'll be doing this one and I hope to get a, a few more in next year and the year after as well then so we'll do a two or three intensive farms and then follow that up with the two or three of the the more extensive farms
4: Are urban areas important for hedgehogs now?
5: Yes, it would appear that urban areas are increasingly important for hedgehogs. So the latest State of British Hedgehogs report that came out just this year in particular has shown that, you know, where there has been a massive decline in hedgehogs in Britain in the last two decades, maybe up to 60% loss of hedgehogs, what they found is that decline is much greater in rural areas and it's actually slowed or nearly stopped in urban areas. So I suppose urban areas in a way haven't changed quite as much as maybe the countryside has over the last... 20 30 years or
4: is it a situation that people living in urban areas are helping out the hedgehog
5: that is something that's happening as well people do feed hedgehogs and do look after them i suppose and it is it's something that we have seen as well in our survey from last year just and as i said look we're only halfway through the survey but we have seen that people who did the surveys in urban areas and rural areas there was a much higher chance of finding hedgehogs in the the kind of urban areas now I don't mean in the middle of the cities we haven't got reports in the middle of the cities of hedgehogs but we are certainly finding them around the edges in the kind of industrial estates and the housing estates around the edges of towns and, and cities that there are hedgehogs living there yeah
4: are you looking for help then from the public this year
5: absolutely the survey is going on until the end of september so if people would like to take part there's still plenty of time probably i suppose the easiest thing to do is to go to the website so www.irishhedgehogsurvey.com and you'll get the information there and if you make contact with me then i can just let you know what training is happening and arrange if you want to do the bigger survey i'll loan the equipment to you if you just want to do it in the garden there's loads of resources there you can easily make your own footprint tunnel to carry out the survey in the garden.
4: And when do you hope to finish the study?
5: <laughs> well, it's how, it's, long, it's, is a how long is it? I am doing this project part time, okay. so it will be ongoing over the next four years. The actual citizen science project, this is the final summer of it, but I will continue on with the kind of density survey work over the next few years, and uh, hopefully, in about about four years' time, I will have some answers for you.
4: <laughs> and those members of the public who want to help, get onto the website. Give us that website address again
5: www.irishhedgehogsurvey.com
0: Thank you very much indeed, Terry. More details, as always, on the website, rte.ie forward slash mini. Speaking of footprints, I'm sure you saw the news during the week of the dinosaur tracks from 113 million years ago uncovered due to severe drought conditions at Dinosaur Valley State Park in the United States. Did you see the
2: story, Aina? Yes, indeed, I did. This was in Texas. Apparently, a river dried up in a park and revealed the footprints of Acrocanthosaurus. I couldn't have put it better myself. (laughs) And apparently, these footprints were made 113 million years ago. Obviously at that time the poor dinosaur was walking over a muddy plain which obviously got the imprints of his feet and this particular kind of a dinosaur was a carnivore and he was feeding on huge big herbivorous dinosaurs who were much larger. But anyway he must have been having a walk to digest his dinner or something because his footprints are found there or its footprints. So anyway the river covered it all up and it wasn't seen again and now because of such drought conditions as has happening in Texas. The whole river dried up and these are all exposed again where the river was underneath. And in fact there's been so much drought all over Europe that lots of things are being unveiled that were never seen before so it isn't just in America it's happening it's happening in other parts of Europe as well.
0: No, it's extraordinary to see those footprints. They look like they were made yesterday, but they kind of, to me, look, in, look a bit cartoonish. It's like if you went out and made footprints yourself and you wondered, did somebody just make these recently? Are they really 113 million years old? What do you think, Richard?
3: Oh, I think they are, and we have them in Valencia. Not dinosaur ones, but an ancient amphibian, a very primitive amphibian, walked across a muddy substrate way back 300 million years ago and left prints that are to be seen today on... On Valencia Island—that's even older than this character. But this, of course, uh, is widespread, and there are lots of such tracks around the world. It was, of course, a theropod. The theropods. There's two types. The main division of dinosaurs is the four-legged one the sauropod, like the diplodocus for instance that sort of thing and this one is a theropod theropods have cashed in on the sauropods by eating them so and of course the theropods are still with us because the birds are descended
1: from them so there's continuity here Absolutely. And they do look like bird footprints, don't they, Nile? Oh, very much so. And that, that's no coincidence. They, they share the, the same structure. The, the footprints of modern birds are made using the, the same bones, the same anatomical arrangement. Uh, and I think it, it, it's remarkable to see the, these tracks preserved so well. I've, I've been to Valencia Island to see the, the tetrapod footprints there. They're so ancient. They, they could actually be the oldest recorded footprints on the planet. So to have those in our own country, I think, is absolutely amazing. I'd re- definitely recommend people should go to see those. But if you think about how vanishingly small the chances are of a creature's footprints being preserved. You know, even just walking in your own garden you don't expect your own footprints to be <laughs> preserved for millions and millions of years. So you just think it must be a, a tiny tiny fraction of a fraction of 1% of these footprints that ever get preserved. But within, with with climate change and with increasing drought perhaps we will start seeing more of these long submerged um, archaeological treasures actually being revealed as water um, runs dry in certain areas and they're exposed to the air for the first time perhaps in, in, in thousands or even millions of years so it'd be really interesting to see that I think
0: The thing it makes me wonder is how heavy were these dinosaurs that it managed to
1: leave such an imprint in the first place well, some of them, of course, were, were truly massive and extremely heavy, but um, an animal doesn't necessarily need to be heavy to leave a detailed footprint. The substrate on which it's walking could be very, very soft. So often on beaches, you'll see footprints left by gulls or even by small little wading birds. Uh, you sometimes will see on city streets in cement on the footpath you'll see sometimes pigeon footprints that have been left behind there. So it really depends on how soft the substrate is and then also how quickly it hardens after the impression has been left.
0: Well, I'm just looking here now. It says that the most famous of the Upright, largely meat eating dinosaurs called theropods, T Rex would have weighed between, wait for it, five and seven thousand kilograms. <laughs> five and seven thousand kilograms. Now, I weigh 92 kilograms, I'm embarrassed to say. That's about as much as the largest African elephant. So, there you go.
1: That would certainly leave a footprint in most substrates, I would say. I wouldn't want that in the garden.
0: (laughs) Anyway, speaking of rare finds, uh, there was another rare find off the coast of Ireland recently. Eric Dempsey can tell us all about this. Eric,
6: how are you today? I'm very well, Derek. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I actually, I was down in Kerry as well um, last Wednesday, the 24th uh, of August. Myself and my good friend Michael O'Cleary, who's the artist who's done the illustrations in the field guides with me. Um, we decided that the wind conditions looked good for Wednesday. This is the time, as you know, that it's beginning to get into the the autumn migration. And at this time of year, a lot of seabirds are on the move. There's birds, for example, like birds called great shearwaters that nest right down the southern Atlantic. These move north in our summer which is their winter of course and they begin to move back off the coast of ireland and if the weather conditions are good as in the winds are blowing strongly on shore it will blow these birds into the coast so We looked at the forecast and we said maybe Wednesday morning will be good. Now, we did see great shearwaters. We also saw two and a half thousand quarry shearwaters, which breed in the Mediterranean. Now, that's more quarry shearwaters in one day than I have seen in 45 years birdwatching. It it was a phenomenal movement of of seabirds. But the big bird that we saw... And we saw it at the very beginning, we sort of just were scanning and suddenly Michael O'Cleary says, what the hell? And that's the polite version. And um, we both scoped into where he was looking. And there in our field of view was a magnificent adult black-browed albatross. Now, there's only about 20 records for Ireland. It's like an enormous big fulmer. It's much bigger than than the gannet. has about a 2.5-metre wingspan, an enormous big orange-pink bill and a a black mark over uh, the eye, which gives its name, black-browed albatross. And these are the birds that soar effortlessly. And this bird was soaring past us off Brandon Head in County Kerry last Wednesday. And we watched it for about three minutes until it went around the corner. And it was possibly one of the the most exciting bird (laughs) experiences I have had for years and years and years. And the ironic thing about this, Derek, is that despite the fact that they are extremely rare birds in Ireland, both Michael O'Cleary and I have seen one already in Ireland. I saw one off Cape Clear Island off a boat and Michael has also seen one in the Sandy Bay area which is part of the Brandon Bay area. So like, despite the fact that it was such a rare bird it wasn't a new bird for either of us in Ireland. And I suppose just to put the context of where these birds come from these are the Southern Ocean Wanderers. These are the birds that are found nesting in places like the Falkland Islands, off the the southern Australian islands. These are far south birds. And what happens is occasionally a bird will cross the Atlantic and will often move with gannets. There was one that spent the summer in the UK this summer. So is it the same bird? It's possible because that bird has now left and it was hanging around with gannets. So there's been these odd occasional records, but it's about being in the right place at the right time if we hadn't looked out there for three minutes you know after the time we arrived or if we were looking elsewhere because it's a very big open sea you know sometimes seeing these rare seabirds is just a matter of being in the right place and looking in the right section of sea and it's uh, it's as it's as mad as that but it was an extraordinary day and we we walked out to a place called dedick point which is a very tough climb down uh, right onto the coast at the back of brandon head and uh, it's an even tougher climb back out again eight hours later but it was one of the best days looking at seabirds that i've ever had in ireland in my entire life
0: Now, there are people listening to this radio programme right now thinking that people like you and Michael O'Cleary are bonkers. But it's important that you tell us about these birds because it tells us something about the changing world we live in.
6: It is because it gives you an indication of what's actually happening out there. And, you know, seabirds are capable of travelling great distances. And with climate change, uh, warmer ocean currents are moving further north. So the potential of seeing even more exotic southern species uh, is, is getting more and more likely. I mean... Niall, you know, you found a brown booby in Greystones two years ago. In my entire life, I would never, ever have imagined that I would see brown booby in Ireland, and yet here was one in Greystones. So it's possible that with the warmer oceans, the warmer currents coming up from the south, the warming of the sea, more and more exotic seabird findings will take place.
0: Thanks very much indeed for reporting it, Eric. And if you'd like to see a picture of the black-browed albatross, you can visit our website, rte.ie forward slash mini. Talk to you again, Eric. Thanks a million. Thank you, Derek. Take care. There goes Eric Dempsey. Probably gone off to the coast to see if he can spot anything else. Anyway, let's move on. Now, here's a fact which got us thinking. Did you know that there are some 689,000 kilometres of hedgerow in Ireland? That would be enough hedge to wrap around the equator over 17 times. And it is perhaps because they are so ubiquitous across every townland in the country that they are somewhat taken for granted. But along with giving our rural landscapes its distinctive texture and patterns, they are also an invaluable aid to biodiversity, forming highways through which wildlife moves and food and shelter for insects, mammals and, of course, nesting birds. And it's the latter... We'd like to focus on next with the opening of the hedge cutting season on September 1st. Our super researcher, John Bella Riley, as he calls himself, took off for a suitable hedge at Kildalton Agricultural College in Piltown, County Kilkenny to chat with countryside management specialist Catherine Keena of Chagask about their hedgerow week, which runs from Friday 26th of August to Friday 2nd of September. Here's his report.
7: Thanks for coming down, John.
8: Great to be here, Catherine. Perfect. So Chagast Hedgerow Week is a timely event as it coincides with the opening of hedge cutting season on 1st of September. Can you remind us why September the 1st is an important date?
7: Well it's important not to cut hedges before then during the bird nesting season because the birds are in the hedges in their nests the eggs the small birds so um, in order to protect the birds that law is there that from a six month period from the the first of March to the end of August uh, hedges cannot be cut because of nesting birds in order to protect them
8: which birds would be most vulnerable to hedge cutting from march to
7: september well there are so many there are about 50 bird, 55 birds that use hedges and maybe about over 30 of them that actually nest in hedges so all the different layers of the hedge you'll have the um the the dunnock and the wren and the robin would be buried deep there in the in the base of the hedge you'll have the trush and the and the blackbird Feeding on the hedge, feeding on the ground of the hedge, on the, on, but they'll also nest in the hedge. So a lot of the songbirds. Then you will have other birds like uh, finches that nest in the trees in the hedges. So you have all these different, they all have their own little niche in the hedge. And of course other birds then use it to feed, feed on the berries, etc. But yeah, so they're, the, the songbirds predominantly nest in hedges.
8: So there is a distinction that you would like to make, Catherine, about two different types of hedges.
7: Yes, based on structure. Number one is, I call the escaped hedge, where it has escaped management, has never been topped. Uh, Some people might call it a tree line. It could be called a linear woodland.
8: These are the ones with the trees sticking out of the top of the hedge because the tops have never been cut. A
7: full line of trees whether they're oak or ash or, or even the white thorn growing up to 15, 20 metres. So the
8: sides could be cut, but not the tops. Yes, side and trimming
7: is always okay.
8: And there's this another type of hedge.
7: The second type is the topped hedge, where the top is cut off the hedge and what people probably more classically think of when we talk about hedges. And that is where we side trim that from a wide base To a triangular profile leaving the peak as high as possible but keeping that thick base supporting the hedge rather than just a stump and then most importantly leaving occasional thorn trees grow up above the body of the hedge so the body of the hedge should be at least one and a half meters but can be up as high as the hedge cutter can nip the growing point and then leave the occasional thorn trees
8: And the torn trees, of course, will bring the flowers and they will bring the berries to attract the pollinators and to attract the the birds. Yes, flowers
7: flowers for the bees and the the fruit for the birds.
8: So often when we're driving down a country road, Catherine, we get stuck behind a tractor with a big, huge um, blade on it, a big, huge saw, um, cutting the hedge back. Who are these people or who are contractors to cut the hedges?
7: Hedge cutting contractors cut the majority of the hedges in Ireland. They're a very very important group. Currently they get a lot of abuse for cutting hedges which is unfortunate because we do need to cut the hedges but in the right way as we've discussed. So yeah hedge cutting contractors are employed by farmers to cut their hedges. So it's important that contractors and farmers understand what we're aiming for and they're very willing to engage. At the end of the day the contractor is being paid to do a job. They will do what the farmer wants. But we need a lot of education. The problem is a lot of times the farmer thinks the contractor knows best, the contractor thinks the farmer knows and they both think the neighbour thinking of the neighbour looking over the hedge thinking of a nice neat edge which is not always what we want.
8: So one of the events at Chagas Hedgerow Week is on hedgerow networks and biodiversity. Can you just give us a brief outline as to the role that hedgerows play in local biodiversity, Catherine?
7: An amazing role. Birds, bats, bees, butterflies, everything uses hedges. And I think the most important part of them is their linear structure. So not only are they home and and food for the, the mammals and birds but the most important thing is their connectivity as you said, networks. So birds, bats, butterflies don't fly across the field, they fly along hedges. The barn owl when it goes out at night follows hedgerows, follow, finds the shrews and the small mammals at the base of a hedgerow rather than in the middle of a field. So uh, uh, for bats they're the, they're the roadways through the, the networks through the countryside again, they're Follow hedges to, you know, to move.
8: You make hedgerows sound like very happening and exciting places with lots of activity and adventures going on.
7: Absolutely, that's where they meet each other, that's where they go to meet others by travelling. They're the motorways through the countryside for our wildlife.
8: So, what are some of the highlights then for Chagas Hedgerow Week and how can the public get involved?
7: Yeah, I suppose the highlights are for people to get into seeing what's going on at the open day in Johnstown Castle in Wexford, in Gurchie and Agricultural College in Tipperary, the, the walk in Kilkenny with Norvision. So it's It's an opportunity to engage, you know, with contractors, with farmers and the general public because we all need to be singing off the same hymn sheet. You know, too often we think other people are looking at the hedges, you know, farmers and contractors, and the neighbour is saying a tidy hedge and, you know, neat is not good. So we all need education and to talk to each other.
0: Thanks to Catherine Kina of Chagask. And more details can be found, as always, on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Well, that's pretty much all we have time for tonight. My thanks to our broadcast coordinator, Jarlath Holland, our researcher, John Bella-Reilly, Launa, Richard Collins, Terry Flanagan and Niall Hatch. We'll do it all again next week. Until then, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye.
1: Mooney Goes Wild is presented and produced by Derek Mooney.